Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. It's Eric from Perth. I have a question. What is so important about this election? I'm Sarah Wilson, and you're listening to This Wild Election, a mini-series that will help everyone who gives a shit about the stuff that defines our nation to make their vote count. Today, let's talk Scott Morrison. You know, ScoMo, Scotty from Marketing, leader of the Liberal National Party and husband of Jenny. The daggy dad who believes in miracles and makes curry on a barbecue with all the ingredients neatly prepped in little ramekins by someone somewhere in the background. I have little tolerance for personality politics, which unfortunately this election campaign has descended into. But the unique thing about Scott Morrison is that so many of his personal beliefs and his past and his particular way of running the show really do seem to inform his political decisions, which affect all of us as Australians. And we see this play out with some of the most contentious and important decisions that he's made. And by way of a few recent examples, his propensity for making highly parochial captain's picks, which international bodies have called out, his resistance to climate policy, his support of anti-trans voices, his dismissive handling of fires and floods and a global pandemic, his lying to other global leaders, and so on. Scott Morrison will tell us he's a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of a guy. I love this country and I love Australians. He also entered this election campaign saying, you know, he's stuffed up a bit, but at least you know what you get. I haven't got everything right. And I'll take my fair share of the criticism and the blame. But do we? Beyond the marketing slogans he's devised for his own brand, I think a lot of us are left scratching our heads. Who is the real Scott Morrison? And what motivates those decisions he's made on our behalf? Can he be trusted in an increasingly complex world where the she'll be right, you know, how good is Australia vibe doesn't feel like it's going to cut it too much longer? My guest today asked the same questions and wrote a book to get to the bottom of it all. Sean Kelly is an awesome political observer and a columnist for the nine newspapers and was previously a political advisor and his new book is called The Game, A Portrait of Scott Morrison. He joins me now. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I have a sense that I just don't know much about Scott Morrison, even though he's been in my face for years. I even follow him on Instagram, you know, and I have done for quite some time. I know he used to work in marketing, you know, Scotty from marketing. I know that he likes to make curry on a barbecue and he's a sharky supporter, but I still don't feel like I really know what he's about. Did you find this a common thing when you were writing the book? Yeah, I mean, this this is one of the perversely interesting things about Scott Morrison. When he came to the Prime Ministership, people really didn't know anything about him. 
the easiest way to think about Scott Morrison's career is that it came in two halves. There's pre-2015 and after 2015. And pre-2015, he basically did not like to talk about himself at all. And he did not like to answer questions. And, and numerous newspapers, even ones that you might consider more likely to be favourable to him, noted how secretive he was. And then in 2015, that shifted. The thing that shifted in 2015 was that Scott Morrison was suddenly a candidate for the prime ministership. A lot of people don't don't uh, remember it that way. That was the year that Tony Abbott got shafted. Malcolm Turnbull took over. But for lots of people in Canberra that year, they thought Scott Morrison would take over from Tony Abbott. And what you see in 2015 is this sudden shift from giving the media absolutely no information mm-hmm. to giving the media two bits of information over and over and over again. One, he liked curries, and two, he liked the footy. And, of course, he doesn't get the prime ministership. In 2015, he has to wait another three years until 2018. Then in 2018, people still, you know, they've got a bit of a sense of that curry football thing, but but most Australians still don't know who, who he is. Takes over the prime ministership and suddenly you see those things in absolute turbocharge. They are everywhere. He holds a press conference in that first week holding a rugby league ball. You see him give his first TV interview, you know, not, not to not to Lee Sales, not to you, Sarah, but to a former rugby league star. It's this crazy overload of football references and cooking curry references uh, because I think he realised that he needed to paint a picture of himself and he needed to do that with really simple brushstrokes, really broad brushstrokes. It's marketing 101, right? No, you're right. It's, it's restrict the information and just drive those couple of facts home as hard as you can. People did not know who Scott Morrison was, but then he gave them just enough to give people the sense that they did know who he was. Well, they knew enough. They had the sense that if he liked cooking a curry on Saturday, he was an ordinary suburban bloke. (laughs) These two things that obviously I've picked up on and others have picked up on, like I sort of thought it was a bit of a joke, but you're actually saying they were two (laughs) somewhat artfully constructed emissions that Scott Morrison put out there like a marketing sort of slogan. Is that the real Scott Morrison though, even just those two morsels of insight? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really good question. I think a complex question to answer in some ways. I think that they are real in some sense. You know, he did, he obviously does cook a curry every Saturday night and he obviously does follow the sharks. I think the, the thing that stands out is the extent of exaggeration in conjunction with that, the fact that we didn't really know anything else about him. The book that I wrote about Scott Morrison started just after he became prime minister. And as I was trying to put that together, it was quite difficult because uh, really there are two things you look at when you're trying to write about a politician. One is what they've done, the things that they've fought for. And the second thing is what they believe in. For Scott Morrison, neither of those things was very evident, uh, especially on the belief side. Every time he said, I, I believe in this, he contradicted himself later. He tended to speak in very broad generalizations when you drill down to them. They came to nothing much. And that's a very tricky thing when you're trying to write about a politician. When you're talking about an MP, surely what they believe is what should drive them in politics and is what voters want to know. Trying to write this profile, it's like, what do I write? And the more I stared at it, the more I realised, and this is often what happens when you're writing, that the thing that seemed so difficult was actually the answer. The fact that Scott Morrison had left no traces throughout his career was actually the defining feature of Scott Morrison. And I think a lot of people have come to see that over the last few years, that actually when you look at Scott Morrison, there is an outline there, but there's not a lot filling in that outline. The longer you watch somebody, the more you realise they don't actually tell you anything significant about that person. And the way I I talk about this in the book is that there are 
are two forms of characters in, in fiction. There are round characters, complex people. You know things about them. They might surprise you in some way. And then there are flat characters. And flat characters are really simple. They often have striking visual characteristics, like, say, a baseball cap, catchphrases like, how good is Australia? You can recognise them. And Scott Morrison's main aim was to be recognised. The name of your book, of course, is The Game. I had to have a little bit of a think about what you mean by that, but essentially you're saying that Scott Morrison treats politics as something of a game, something that you win. And I suppose that Mm. takes the place of beliefs. In some ways you might say real adherence to an authentic drive that you, you know that, that a population can get behind. Was that a hard conclusion for you to draw about a national leader, that they essentially see politics as a game? It is a sad conclusion, but an important point of the book, I think, is to say that it, while this can be read in many ways of damning of Scott Morrison, it would be wrong to see Scott Morrison as a unique figure. I think in some ways this treatment of politics as a game is something that has spread throughout politics. It's, it's common to politicians on all sides of all ideologies, or, or rather lack of ideologies. Uh, I think increasingly over the last few decades, we have seen a transition away from a focus on policies, away from a focus on belief, and towards a really narrowly defined focus on winning elections. And as a society, I think we tend to glorify politicians who are very good at those things. Well, Trump, you know, a reality star and Boris, you know, who was a a journalist and quite a sensationalist journalist and then we get the marketer. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. It's 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 a really solid point. Bernard Keane has written a little bit about this. I think it's an important point because the thing that Johnson and, and Morrison and Trump all have in common is that they know how to tell stories on some level or, or to put it another way, they know how to present reality in a way that isn't directly connected to reality itself. They know how to tell us a certain set of things that might not actually be directly connected to the facts on the ground. I think that's a really worrisome place for our politics to have reached. The problem isn't treating it as a game in some respects. The problem is when you only treat it as a game and when you forget that it actually is connected to people's lives. Yeah. So I've got a listener question here for you. G'day, I'm Peter from Bendigo. My question is, what is a quiet Australian? I'm hearing a lot about it at the moment, but I would just love to know what a quiet Australian is. So, Sean, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What is this sort of ordinary, quiet, meek Australian line that Scott Morrison speaks to so often and from the very beginning? Well, it it has its roots in Richard Nixon's characterisation of the Americans who were behind him as the silent majority. What Nixon meant by it, and he he was fairly explicit about this in in advertising, was the people who felt as though the world was changing, that they were being shut out of the new world that was being developed. They, uh, you know, didn't like being told they were racist, for example. And I think Scott Morrison is playing to a, a very similar sentiment. It's a short way of encapsulating a much broader sentiment, which is people who feel that they're being left out of some kind of Australia. And Scott Morrison often presents this in a a conflict sense. And it's interesting because he often talks about bringing Australians together, but what he actually says is there are quiet Australians and then uh, there are all these other people who are angry. Uh, And he's on the side of the quiet Australians. So he's constructed this binary. You know, people who love Australia and are quiet and don't make their voices heard 
and people who are noisy, who raise their voices and who don't like Australia. I would say that's a false binary. I would say that many people who raise their voices do so because they love Australia and they want it to be a better place. But for me, the more worrying thing about it is the way that it ties into the way that minorities have often been portrayed. Often they've been told to be polite. If they'd only ask a bit more nicely, then maybe they'd get what they want. And of course, most downtrodden groups have tried asking nicely for a long time and it it doesn't work. And so they end up raising their voices. And so I think when we talk about the quiet experience, what's actually happening is people who have very good reason to be unhappy about the way things are, people who are upset about being treated unfairly are effectively being dismissed. It's a very neat rhetorical manoeuvre. But it is all very well for somebody like Scott Morrison in his camp, a white privileged male, to say, oh, let's just, you know, let's just quieten down. What that also does, I feel, Sean, is it also takes away this discussion that there are have and have nots going on. There are minorities. Mm. There are people who have cause to raise their voice. It basically shuts everybody down because, hey, Australia's great and if you voice up, then you're a problem. Exactly. It's not just a a categorisation. In a way, it's a suggestion of the way that you should be. It's an instruction. I suppose a national disaster or several national disasters, climate disasters and an uprising of women and a global pandemic and all kinds of complicated issues that need more than a slogan have Mm. arisen. And I'm wondering, is this approach, this kind of slogan first approach, running its course this election? Is that why we've seen Scott Morrison's popularity ratings plummet over the last couple of weeks? My strong sense of the way that Scott Morrison has approached politics, as I said, was as a game. He has a set of rules, he has a set of tactics that he falls back on again and again. So I think it's not coincidental that the moments in the last few years that Scott Morrison has struggled most with have been those moments when uh, it's been obvious to Australians that politics isn't a game. Uh, when suffering hasn't at the forefront, when it's been about trauma and crisis and specifically physical harm. So we had bushfires, we had an uprising of women and specifically around the issue of sexual violence. We had vaccines in a pandemic which carried a lethal threat with it. Uh, you know, they are three instances which harm played a significant role. In those moments, Scott Morrison's approach to politics as a game began to break down because I think he had a great deal of trouble conceptualising politics in another way. Somebody's success or failure in a campaign actually relates directly to their ability to govern. Uh, Those two things shouldn't be completely separate, but they are often because we still insist on thinking politics as a game. Yes, and it's there's also that risk, of course, that we could forget all of the stuff that's happened in the past because we can get bludgeoned by more slogans and that sits front and centre in our brains as we head to the electoral booths, you know, on May 21st. What I'd love you to do is actually talk a bit about his past because, as you said, there's sort of two phases. Prior to 2015, 2018, we really didn't know much about his past. So what was Scott Morrison's life like? I understand he grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Take us from there. That's right. And he's been at pains to emphasise the eastern suburbs weren't quite as ritzy as, as they are now. I'm sure. Parents were quite busy. His father was a policeman and he was also a local politician, a councillor. He rose to, I think, the position of chief inspector, which he held for a little while at the same time as being mayor. He said that there wasn't a conflict of interest. There might be a sense of Scott Morrison's strong will 
in those comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was obviously a very busy man and a man dedicated to community service. Family activities were geared around other events. So, for example, his parents were also involved in local community theatre. The parents, I think, ran the local community theatre troupe. It was a real sense of community for them, and they all acted in these performances together. Specifically, they acted in a performance of Oliver. Scott Morrison played uh, the Artful Dodger, the, the young Oh, my God, that's beautiful. Fa- <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, a, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? His father played Fagan. From there, he became a little bit of a child actor, actually. Apparently, his mother saw the, the talent, saw the glint in his eye, and took him along to casting sessions. He ended up in a number of ads. Nobody's ever been able to quite pin down which they were, but apparently it was in a VIX campaign. There's that theatrical performative streak in Scott Morrison's life right from the very beginning. And of course there was the churchy stuff, wasn't there? And he met Jenny quite young. He did. I think that they first met when they were 12. They started going out very young. They were real childhood sweethearts. They did break up for uh, a couple of weeks. I think that Scott broke it off. They, they got back together quite quickly. They were married very young as well. Scott was very religious. He, um, he's talked about finding God, uh, you know, having a real moment when he, when he connected with God when he was very young. That's been a really important part of his life for a, a very long time. He's changed churches, of course. He was uniting and Presbyterian at various points, and he's ended up being an evangelical Christian with the, the Pentecostals. Judith Brett made the very good point, I think, that that religion in some ways offers the sense of community that religion in Scott's childhood offered him. I think she says something like, maybe what he wants most of all is a really good sing-along. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think... Um, <laughs> well, and hence, hence the Hillsong visits and so on. In your book, you describe that he had a string of jobs, and I think the first one was uh, Jenny's dad got for him in Sydney. But you say that he managed to leave this string of jobs under a bit of a cloud. What do you mean by that? I should say that he lined up that job for Morrison because Scott wanted to go and study theology. He thought that it was important getting married for him to actually you know, begin work and, and start earning a, a real income. He left his first job in tourism and went to work for the competitor and that left a bit of a, a bad taste in the mouth. From there he went to New Zealand and in New Zealand he was at the centre of a huge controversy which the New Zealand Prime Minister ended up having to respond to. The minister Scott Morrison was working for had to resign. It was a it was a real mess and they ended up being an, an Auditor General's report into the whole affair. And then Scott Morrison moved back to Australia. He got Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Another job in tourism after a while. And that job with Tourism Australia also ended in an Auditor General's report asking real questions about what had gone on in that job. He lost that job. Uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't resign gracefully. He received quite a significant payout. There were real clashes with the minister in Australia, Fran Bailey. So in a sense, all of the jobs that Scott Morrison has moved through, except for his political jobs, have ended in real trouble. And then, of course, he entered politics under a bit of a cloud as well, which has been revealed quite recently. When he landed his gig as the candidate for Cook, we've obviously learned recently via the, the, the candidate who was there at the time, Michael Toke, coming out and speaking about how he was shoved aside and there was racism that was involved there. There does seem to be a little bit of a pattern emerging. Absolutely. There is definitely trouble following Scott Morrison in various guises. But I, I think the, the really interesting thread, especially about the way that he came to be in the parliament, he's always denied having anything to do with the way that his opponent ended up falling out of that race. And the important point about the pre-selection is that Scott Morrison in the first round of votes got something like eight votes. He didn't just lose, he got absolutely smashed. His opponent was dragged down and Scott Morrison rose up from the fire and it ended up being the one to enter parliament, of course, is now prime minister. But then that happened again and again. It happened when Tony Abbott fell, Malcolm Turnbull became prime minister, Scott Morrison became treasurer. The votes of his supporters were really crucial in elevating Malcolm Turnbull and getting Scott Morrison that big promotion. But Scott Morrison has always said he had absolutely nothing to do with it. And then, of course, he becomes prime minister. Exactly the same thing happens. His supporters all make it happen. But Scott Morrison says, I didn't want this to happen. I had nothing to do with it. Malcolm Turnbull had my support all the way. Maybe it's all true, but it is a set of three very odd coincidences. Yes, of course. And just for listeners who are a little bit in the dark as to the Michael Toke situation when he first ran as a candidate in Cook, it was right in the middle of the Cronulla riots. And of course, Michael is Lebanese and accusations came out. Morrison denies it, but it seems to have come from his camp that he was a Muslim. When in fact, of course, he was basically a a Catholic. That essentially saw him um, unable to, to get up at that time in history. Then under Abbott, he became immigration minister in opposition and he became famed, I suppose, well, famed for turning back boats. And as I understand it, and I've seen photos of this, he has a trophy in his office in the shape of an Asian fishing boat that says, mm. I stopped these. <laughs> is, this, is this true? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely true. And so, as you say, around about 2015, he starts to get ambitious, daggy dad shark supporter. PM. I might get you, though, to actually explain some of the line and bullying. And I've got a question here once again from a listener. Hey, Sarah, I'm Amelia from Launceston. Has there ever been lying and bullying in Parliament like this? I'm a new voter and I feel I'm just forced to accept it's just the way that it is. So, Sean, maybe you could explain where this line and bullying comes from. And I can't quite believe that I am just referring to it as a given that our Prime Minister is a liar and a bully. These claims have come from international leaders, from the President of France, Macron. They've also come from members of his own party, both sitting and retired. I feel that this is something we've had to kind of accept, but could you explain where this started and where it came from and how he 
is able to lie and then move on from it so well as though, you know, guys, there's nothing to see here. I think it's important to distinguish between these two elements, the lying and the bullying. The lying is something that has arguably been a part of Scott Morrison's career for a long time. Call it whatever you want, but he certainly has this habit of saying something and then when he's pushed on it a little bit later, he'll say, I never said that thing. Probably the most egregious example is when he called Sam Dastiari, a Labor senator, Shanghai Sam, and then later said, I never used those words. Now, he didn't do it once. He didn't do it twice. He did it 17 times. Yep. That type of thing happens again and again. It happens in really egregious situations. There was a situation where there were very serious allegations about sexual assault and the abuse of minors on Nauru and Manus Island. Scott Morrison announced an inquiry, but he, at the same time he announced an inquiry into charity workers who were there, save the children workers, because there was a sense that perhaps they had made these allegations to the newspapers. That's right, yes. What he said was they were, they were potentially putting people up to making false allegations. Now, an inquiry was held. It turned out that that suggestion was entirely unfounded, that these workers had been sent away from the island, had had their reputation smeared for absolutely no reason on an entire falsehood. And when Scott Morrison was asked about it by Barry Cassidy on Insiders, you know, a very serious interview, he said, I, I never said those things. And Cassidy had the words in front of him and he, and he said, well, well, yes, you did. And Scott Morrison didn't really have a good answer to that. And he's done that type of thing again and again and again. Most recently with the Hillsong stuff, right? Oh, I haven't been there for three mm. years, except that there are pictures all over the internet and there's videos of him standing up there on the stage. There just seems to be this acceptance, oh, yeah, he just lies. Oh, well, we'll just move forward. How does he get away with it, Sean? I think he does it often enough and persuasively enough that I'm not sure he's even really doing it consciously. I think, and I write this in the book, that he has an ability to convince himself that whatever he needs to say in the moment is the truth, that this is actually what has happened in the world. And it might not bear any relation to the past, but, but that's what needs to be said. And so he will say it and he will believe it utterly. There's this amazing story that Catherine Murphy writes about in a quarterly essay. And she says that Nick Xenophon, who had worked with Morrison in the past, came up to him a, a little while later and said, oh, we should have a coffee sometime. And Scott Morrison said to him, what for? And Nick Xenophon, a little bit surprised, said, well, you know, I thought we got on well. We worked well together on some matters in the Senate. Scott Morrison laughed and said, no, mate, I'm, I'm purely transactional. I think it shows this ability to move on from moment to moment. You know, most of us, if we are nice to somebody in the past, we feel the need to keep being nice to them because we feel like there's some coherent self moving through the, through the world and we should act similarly at all times. Whereas for Scott Morrison, he will be nice to somebody if they need it in one moment. And if that's no longer needed the next moment, he's happy to say, no, no bugger off. I would like to perhaps go back to some of the Pentecostal church stuff because it has worried me for some time. A few years ago, I decided to go and have a look at what the church is really about. They've got pretty strong beliefs, even beyond the Hillsong connections. A big tenant of the faith is that they're awaiting the second coming of Jesus. There's a strong belief in miracles, and of course we hear the Prime Minister use that term often. And there's also this notion of the rapture or this idea that we are at end times but that believers will be saved and lifted to heaven while the rest of us will be left to, I guess, burn in climate hell. I 
almost can't believe that that could be true, that that could be a belief in 2022 of a Prime Minister. I've wanted to ask somebody this question for a very long time. In your understanding of Scott Morrison, the man, have these beliefs gone some way to explaining his lack of care around climate change? Look, this is an argument that some people make. I don't know. Scott Morrison is um, quite private about the exact details of his belief. It's possible, but I, I really couldn't tell you. But these are central themes of the Pentecostal faith, from what I understand. There is certainly a focus on end times, where, where I think you definitely can trace lines between the way Scott Morrison acts politically and his Pentecostal belief is in a couple of sensibilities, if you like. So not, not specific beliefs, but a kind of way of approaching the world that might be drawn from the way Pentecostalism approaches the world. One does relate to what you're talking about, which is essentially an overriding belief that you will be fine, that God will save you, that everything will work out okay if you're a believer. And that means two things, I think. Firstly, I think it partly accounts for the almost willfully blind optimism that Scott Morrison brings to government. And you can see that in the vaccines, for example, a sense that he didn't really need to prepare, that everything would work out okay. It's not a race. And you see that again and again. Exactly, not a race. And I think that is there in the climate policy, not needing to prepare, everything will work out fine in the end. And then the second thing is this division of the world into believers and non-believers. There is a greater sense of binaries in Pentecostalism. There's a really strong sense of good on one side and evil on the other. And I think if you see in Scott Morrison's language again and again, and as I was talking about the quiet Australians and the, the non-quiet Australians, you see again and again the division of the world in two. Mm. Uh, he does it when he talks about if you give a go, you get a go. It, it, there is a division there. It divides the world between those who give a go and those who don't give a go, which I think in his mind probably mirrors the division between the quiet Australians and everybody else. I don't know how much a literal belief in those facets of Pentecostalism influences him. We can spend a lot of time trying to get to know politicians, and I think often people want to know exactly what makes them tick. But I also think the most important things we can learn from politicians is by looking at the way they actually behave in the world. Scott Morrison's made it pretty clear he doesn't really care about climate change. Whether it comes from his faith, whether it comes from any other kind of scientific belief, whatever it might be, I wouldn't mind getting your take on his inability to read the room on issues such as, well, women's issues, <laughs> um, generally just people who are not like himself, you know, and most recently, of course, in the, the debate that was held in Brisbane on Sky News, there was a comment about children with autism and he made a comment that offended a lot of Australians. Are these gaffes, are they unfortunate gaffes or is this the real Scott Morrison? I think that Scott Morrison has an enormous amount of difficulty imagining his way into other people's lives. So when he presents himself as a suburban Australian, as, as a white suburban Australian bloke, he's very much thinking in terms of governing for those people. That doesn't mean that he would ever say that to himself exactly. It doesn't mean that he would ever say that he wasn't, even feel that he wasn't governing for all of those people out there. But I think what it, what it does mean is that he finds it very difficult to imagine the world as it might be experienced by people whose lives aren't exactly like his own. And he more or less said this, you know, in the midst of the the uprising of women, as you put it, or specifically at the beginning 
when he was confronted with the allegations about Brittany Higgins. At, at first he gave a very sterile response, if you like. He said kind of the right words, but they were distant. He said, you know, this is obviously a terrible thing. Uh, we've followed best practice on all mm-hmm. occasions. And then the next day after a bit of an outcry came and said, I, I talked to Jenny last night. She said, you know, what, what if it were one of your daughters? That's the way you've got to think about it. That had given him a renewed understanding. And, of course, he was attacked for that. People saying, well, how could, why did you need Jenny to explain to you how terrible a rape allegation is? What was really interesting, I think, firstly, that the public mood and the journalist mood had shifted enough that journalists asked him about that. I think comments like that have gone pretty unremarked in politics in the past. So he was asked about that in that press conference, and he pretty much said, that's the only way I can think about it. I actually can't see the world any other way. And I think that's a really it's very telling. You know, it's a really explicit statement. Mm. Yeah, it's a really explicit statement of that lack of imagination and lack of ability to empathise. And it doesn't mean that it comes out of malice, but it is a problem, I think. And it's not a problem in everyone's life. You know, there are plenty of people out there. We all struggle with it. But on they're not level. the prime minister of a nation leading 26 million people at a time in history, which is tenuous, it's nuanced, it requires detailed discussion, and it requires a fair bit of compassion and empathy. Look, all of this bearing in mind, Scott Morrison is asking Australian voters to trust him to run the country for another term. Is this kind of game plan suitable or is it a liability for us as a nation right now? I'm not here to tell people which way to cast their vote. I do think that the model of politics that Scott Morrison has um, has achieved a kind of perfection in is a real concern. One of the concerns with anybody succeeding with a, with a pretty terrible model of politics is that other people see what they've done and say, well, maybe I should do some of that too. While I think Labor is making a much greater policy offering than the Liberals at this election, by, by greater I mean there is more of it, there is still a sense that Labor are approaching this election more as a political strategy question than as a question of exactly what the country needs right now. And so I, I think whichever side wins, that could be Scott Morrison's legacy for a time at least, that that model of politics, that kind of performative model that doesn't necessarily have much to do with reality and which policy takes a real backseat, is actually seen as a way to succeed at elections. I guess I have one final question for you, Sean. You do talk about this in the final chapter of your book, that if Scott Morrison wins at this election, essentially what it says, and you don't say it in these words, but I'm paraphrasing, is that Australians, we prefer complacency. To a certain extent, we prefer ScoMo's slogans, even his lies and his bullying, you know, the, the mistakes that he's made. We prefer this to change. We want to keep saying she'll be right and how good's Australia double shuckers. Is that your assessment? That's the choice we have is staying with something cosy and comfort, comforting, an old image of Australia, or going with change, which can be scary. I think that it is absolutely right to say that Scott Morrison's main message to voters is nothing needs to change. Uh, His message at the last election was nothing needs to change. And that was the beautiful political meeting point of the persona, the daggy dad persona, and the very small policy agenda. The daggy dad persona says we can be proud of who we are already, nothing needs to change. And his lack of a policy agenda said exactly the same thing. This election, in some ways, he's offering the same thing. It's because of the pandemic, it's shifted slightly. It's now a little bit more of we can go back to exactly the way things were. In essence, it's that 2019 message refreshed. 
Australia can be the way it's always been. Not much uh, needs to change. And when I was talking about Labor, to some extent, learning from Scott Morrison's 2019 performance, you know, I think it is fair to characterise Labor's offering at this election as a little bit of change. You could characterise it that way. And that's very deliberate. I think both parties have decided, based on polling, based on focus groups, that Australians feel very uncertain right now and that the response to that is let's not offer much change at all. I do think that that's a concern because as we head into times that, yeah, absolutely are uncertain, my own suspicion is that Australia probably needs to change quite a lot and we can, you know, we can get run over by that change or we can start making shifts and that'll probably be quite difficult. But at some point our politicians are going to need to level with us and talk to us honestly about that. Look, Sean, you have been exceedingly helpful. You've answered a lot of my questions that have been niggling for years. I'm aware that, you know, you're obviously a journalist who works for the Nine Papers and you do need to be balanced. I'm aware that I need to ensure that I am not too slanted in my take on things, in my outrage with where things are at politically. And you do a great job of showing that, yes, what we're contending with is a setup, a system, a way of politicking in Australia that is worrying. And I guess it's up to voters to determine whether they feel that they'll get more of that under Scott Morrison, whether they're comfortable with that, or whether they do want to move into a space of change at a time when the rest of the world is saying, we're changing, you better come with us. But thank you so much for your time. I'll be thinking of you on election night. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me today, Sarah. So that was a bit of a portrait of the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. In the next episode, or maybe two, I'll do a similar portrait of the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, with the author of his biography. So stay tuned for that. And please keep sending in your questions via voicemail on Instagram or however you like to communicate with me, Substack, my newsletter, in the comments on Instagram. I do read them. I am trying to encapsulate them into this series and make sure they're all answered by the end, by the time we get to May 21st, Election Day. Anyway, until the next episode, stay engaged, stay wild. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.